Welcome to episode 36 of the Trail Runners Experience. On today's episode, I'll be talking to Jim Kay. Now, Jim is a sports scientist who specializes in uh, hydration and sweat rate analysis, to name but a few things. He's also a really good runner. And so today we're going to talk a lot about his uh, marathon running and his endeavors into trail running. So put your earphones in or earbuds, headphones, whatever you want to call it. Put your running shoes on and let's get running. Ready, set, go. Okay, welcome to the Trail Runners Experience. Uh, I'm your host, Daniel Ferrugia. I'm sitting here in beautiful Glenelg in Mosley Square where there's trams and there's people drinking coffee. And I'm sitting with the, a speedy runner by the name of Jim Kay. Welcome, Jim. Hello, thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, no problem, Jim. Um, so, Jim, you're a, uh, a bit of a road runner and a and sort of a new-ish trail runner and can you uh, maybe tell us a little bit about where you're from and how you got into trail running? Sure, so I'm from uh, the slightly colder climbs of the UK. Uh, been in Adelaide uh, since around August mm. last year. Um, so yeah, I ran a bit back in the UK for uni, did a bit of triathlon and stuff at uni, uh, but float like a cannonball so I sort of gave up with the triathlon and went purely to the running um, so I did a few half marathons 10ks that sort of stuff back home and then really sort of came out here started taking it a little bit more seriously I guess and uh, getting into some of the the trail running stuff the TRSA races the URSA summer stuff uh, did Yarrabilla Ultra last year it's my first sort of attempt at, at the ultra um, and then yeah now this year first half of the year looking more on the road so focusing towards Gold Coast Marathon and then mixing in with that as as much fun stuff on the trails that I can really. Yeah excellent no so um you're a um as I said in the intro you're you've, you're a fairly fast runner and by and I you know I generally don't like to brag about people's times and and but um they're definitely worth mentioning and, and um so you just on the weekend you ran you ran the Clare half marathon, and can you tell us a little bit how that went? So Clare is for those of you who don't live in South Australia is a beautiful little town in um, in the what, in wine country in yeah, yeah in north. south in South Australia up north from Adelaide and it's a beautiful area and they have a beautiful little half marathon there. It's a little bit undulating, isn't it? The course or some part? Oh, you see the last part's a little bit downhill. Uh, yeah, a little bit. So it's it's pretty much a steady climb for the first ten and a half k, and then you turn around and it's a nice steady descent. But it's nothing too uh, draining. So it's it's about a hundred meters of climb over the first ten k. So pretty much a one percent uh, gradient all the way out, and then yeah, turn around and and fly home. So yeah, I managed to run it pretty much dead on plan. I was aiming for anything sub one twenty would have been good, um, which is about three. 48 splits <clears throat> so yeah. I sort of knew if I could get to the turn around low 350s high 340s then I could hopefully make that back on the way back and I turned did. pretty much dead on 40 minutes yeah well, uh, for 10k yeah, yeah no or 10 and a half k and, a half, yeah. Yeah. and then and then yeah came back a lot stronger than I was expecting and 
finished in 117 so yeah 117 yeah. is a uh, sensational time for a half marathon and so i guess that gives people a bit of an idea of sort of the caliber of athlete you are and so that was a pb for you yeah yeah so previous best was 120 so yeah pretty significant chunk of that so yeah, yeah I, I would um i would give my my right leg to be able to run close to that i um am not i don't have a tremendous amount of leg speed and so i'm all, i still i'm, I'm a I shouldn't say I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I've still never broken one and a half hours for the half marathon. But I, to be fair, I haven't trained for a half marathon for some time. Um, maybe one day when I grow up. <laughs> um, so you're, um, yeah, so you, you, you smash that. And so what's the half marathon sort of in preparation for? What are you, what are you training for specifically? So yeah, the half, that was sort of the big... Uh test event I guess you'd say for for Gold Coast Marathon which is in uh, first week of July so yeah been doing like a few sort of smaller races a few of the trail things it's just sort of good fun to get out there and racing but this was sort of the one big one where I had a time in mind where um, so yeah it's a good confidence builder now because now I know that I've got the speed I need for the marathon so it's it's probably more just a case of um, maintaining that speed and just making sure that I've got got the k's under my belt going yeah. into july endurance yeah, yeah. exactly so yeah. i think that's where i've struggled in the past i've always been had an okay speed over the shorter stuff but then actually translating that to running for 42k is 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 a different beast i think yeah and a lot happens in that last sort of i reckon the last 15 k's of a marathon yeah. um it can suddenly seem like an extraordinarily long way. Yeah. You know, have you had that experience? Yeah, I think, yeah, well, I've, I've done a couple of marathons previously and yeah, neither of them have been uh, the, the, exactly the time so that, that I was probably wanting. And yeah, I think, I think the one thing that I always notice is <clears throat> when you look at the course map and stuff beforehand and maybe you see there's eight stations every four or five K and you think, oh, that's, you know, that's plenty. But then once you're in that last 15 K, that next five K to that next bit of water or a bit of sugar or whatever it is seems like seems like a whole whole world away so yeah, yeah. absolutely and especially and it's the kind of thing that you can't really prepare anyone for until they're in it and they've you've got to experience yeah. that feeling for yourself and you get the um the, the bonk you know yeah. you bonk or hit the wall or whatever you want to call it and um any i mean i've hit i hit the wall i think in my first marathon um my last 10 Ks of the Sydney Marathon years back, I was on track for a reasonable time. I probably did the second half of the marathon 20 minutes slower than the first half. Yeah. So it was pretty pretty disastrous, but overall still reasonable time. But yeah, um, so you've hit the wall, no doubt. Yeah, a uh, couple of marathons I've done previously, but back in the UK, I've yeah, definitely probably experienced that hit the wall feeling, which I certainly wouldn't recommend to anyone, but I think in the long run, it's probably, you can take the positive from it that you kind of, you know the, the warning signs for when you're getting towards that stage and you can up your feeding or just slow your pace a little bit, concentrate on your breathing, just just little things that you can do to try and yeah. sort of prevent yourself really getting into that hole because once once you're in it there's there's no getting out of it but it's a good learning of, experience hey yeah, yeah when you're sort of on the edge of it there's there's things you can do so i think it's a it's a horrible feeling and it probably shows that i wasn't as prepared as i should be but going forward it, it's probably can take some positives from it um that actually 
we'll come back to I want to come back to more of your running but that actually sort of triggers a question um, I know that you do a lot of work um, with hydration and I and I guess this is an important aspect of um, of, uh, of running is understanding hydration and things like that can you tell us a little bit about your um, your education and how that helps your own running and, and basically what you're doing career-wise sure so uh yeah by by trade by training i'm a, I'm a sports scientist from uh the university of bath um and through sort of my study with them i got involved with uh precision hydration back in the uk and now uh, doing a little bit of work for them out here in in uh, sa as well um and yeah like you said that the aspects of hydration is i i don't think it's one that's overlooked i think most people do realize that it's an important thing but i think what does get sort of misconstrued is some of the the conceptions about hydration um and people kind of struggling to find that balance between over drinking and under drinking um so definitely what sort of i've learned through my training and a bit of my work is that um generally most people will drink too much fluid um and that fluid will maybe be water maybe be uh, like a low strength electrolyte whereas you can adapt that a little bit to reduce your fluid intake um, and therefore just uh, alleviate a lot of issues some simple ones like needing to go to the toilet or just feeling a lot of fluid in your stomach some more serious like hyponatremia and things like that um, but yeah reducing your, your fluid intake but keeping your your electrolyte concentration pretty high um, so yeah as a, as a sort of company we've had a, a fair bit of success with a lot of sort of long distance athletes, marathon runners, triathletes and stuff that have maybe been suffering with a few hydration issues that have yeah, managed to sort of dial their, dial their plans and be a little bit more personalised with that approach. Yeah, excellent. Um, so yeah, you've covered a few of the questions I already had. When you're racing, is it something, how do you, like say on the weekend at, mm. at Clare at the half marathon, how did, what did you, did you utilize any of these strategies or how did you, how did you feel? I guess with a half marathon, you can almost get away with not too much and especially if it's kind of cool, but, um, did you drink? Yeah. Well, I mean, we were quite lucky at Claire that it was, um, yeah, very nice and cool conditions. It was about six or seven degrees when we set off. So that's always nice that it's one of the things you think about less, but I think just from, the the training and work that I've done it's one of those things that's always in the back of my mind and just so making sure for example the night before um, I'd have sort of a a higher strength electrolyte just so that I know on the morning that I'm sort of my my electrolyte stores are kind of topped up I guess it's the same way that a lot of people would do like a, a glycogen load for a um, for a marathon or something like that um, during the race for a half I didn't didn't really take anything on. Um, but that's where sort of having the, the higher strength electrolytes can be quite quite useful a preparation thing if you're doing something like a 10k or if you're a fast half marathon runner and you don't want to be stopping for water on the course or you don't want to if you're in a trail race you don't want to be carrying anything with you um, being able to actually do kind of a, a prehydrate and know that you're starting in a hydrated state for your sort of maybe sub two hours sub one and a half hour races you can kind of know that you're in that good shape and you don't need to worry about too much during the race. That's really interesting. I um, So how would you do that? How would you execute your prehydration? It's more specific, going into a bit more detail if you, yeah. Sure, so, um, well what a lot of people won't know is that most, 
of the hydration products that you might get on the market, so your, your typical ones you'll see in the supermarkets, your Gatorade, Powerade, SIS, anything like that, will be, uh, they'll vary in the terms of their electrolyte content, but they'll roughly be around 500 milligrams per litre, um, which is a sort of appropriate for some people, but some people will lose more, some people will lose less. So for a prehydrate, I'll always um, use around a 1500 milligram per litre of sodium solution. Um, 500 ml sort of the night before and then make up a bottle on the morning and just sort of sip on that sometimes ideally you'd have sort of the 500 ml the, the morning of and finish that a couple of hours before the race um, sometimes that's not always practical if you've got to travel and warm up and stuff so I'll just have that there and sip on that sort of as needed um, and that'll yeah that'll generally set me up well and I think beyond that point once you know that you've got that that electrolyte content it's really just a case of um, drinking to thirst which a lot of people struggle with I think there's a lot of sort of misconceptions of this idea that once you feel thirsty you're already 20% dehydrated or whatever the sort of uh, propaganda says but that's not true uh, there's yeah most there's a lot of research now um, so Tim Noakes is probably one of the, the notable names yep, um, yep. so a lot of what he says I agree with there's other things he says that, that I don't agree with but I think when you're looking at sports science you've got to sort of take all of the approaches on board and kind of um, critically evaluate them and, and take the bits that you can sort of see are true and then there's other things that maybe disagree with but um, he was certainly one of the first to sort of debunk this idea of just you know you've got to drink a litre an hour or whatever it is and actually you can allow yourself to become a little bit thirsty um, and you, you know you're not not going to die. I mean, you could, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know what you mean, though. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and particularly with with things like a half marathon, you know, you you can afford to run for an hour and thirty up to up to two hours without taking on heaps and heaps of fluid. But it's definitely useful when you pass those aid stations if you can feel that your mouth's a bit dry, feel that you're you've lost a lot of sweat, just to take on a a, a small amount of water will definitely be that, helpful. That's fascinating. Um, yeah, I have you heard the study about um on the theory behind just swishing electrolytes in your mouth mm. and like can you do you know much about that like the 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 theory that i heard or the the study i won't be able to cite it but <laughs> that you, you swish electrolytes in your mouth even if you don't swallow it it activates something in your brain that basically has the same effect as just drinking it yeah so there's a few studies in terms of the, the mouth rinse ones um the, the electrolyte things one and that there's also a, a a, a lot of research that shows the same with carbohydrate um, so for example at Claire I didn't take on any carbohydrate it's only you know for me hour and 17 minutes you don't need Not any really. carbohydrate really yeah. but I had a couple of chews in my pocket and at two points in the mar- uh, in the half marathon just chucked one of those in my mouth a couple of bites swirled it around and then sort of got rid of it and yeah there's a lot of research now that shows that that's enough to sort of stimulate your the receptor, your sort of um, oral receptors to send that message to your brain that you've got some carbohydrate going in and, and this, the same is true with the with the electrolytes as well so yeah definitely for people that are racing shorter races yeah 10k's half marathon stuff like that um, that don't want to be you know a lot of people don't get on well with gels for example or really high carbohydrate uh, fluids so things yeah things like a mouth wrench just getting it in there swishing it around that can sometimes just give you that little pickup that you need without having 
whatever, however many grams of carbs, you know, yeah. 25 grams per gel, like actually sitting in your stomach that really you, you probably don't really need. So. Over those short, especially like, as you say, under, under two hours. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's fascinating. And I did actually hear, uh, I heard about a study, I think I'd read it somewhere, where they did the um, electrolyte, the way they conducted the study was they had a test group that were drinking, they were just swishing the, the electrolytes in their mouth, and then the other test group was drinking, was, had a nasogastric tube up in their nose, and, it was, and the fluids were going directly into their stomach, but bypassing the mouth altogether, and the people who swished had a better result. Mm. And even though the one, so like, the fact that it, even though it was going straight into the body, yeah, yeah, so I thought that was a really interesting way. It would have been a very uncomfortable way to conduct a study because <laughs> yeah, right. then those people then had to run on a treadmill for a certain period of time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I think I, I love all that, those sort of studies. I, I don't know if I'd want to do one like that though. I've I've been part of a few um, mm. scientific yeah, studies. <laughs> yeah, but that would be uncomfortable. Um, so on the we just a few days after uh, what day is it today? Oh, it's the first of May today. Actually, there you go. We've dated the podcast, and um, a few days ago was the London Marathon, and um, the it was fantastic. I watched it live. I know you watched it live, um, and maybe a few listeners watched it. Um, you know the great Elliot Kipchoge. One way in the second fastest official marathon of all time. I think two oh two. 30 something yeah. Um, yeah and so he I know him and a lot of the elites they use that Morton Morton stuff yeah. are yeah. you um, apparently it's the new big thing that the elites are using so do you know anything about some of these products and why they're so good yeah so I know a bit about the Morton I've got a, a friend of mine back at Bath actually who um, I'll send the podcast to him, make sure he gives a listen and maybe he can maybe he can enlighten us a bit because he was actually doing his uh, his master's thesis this year studying Morton and studying some of the more um, more the actual uh, effects of it like sort of on the body where um, rather than just the effects on performance actually the sort of effects it has on the body um, so I need to catch up with him and, and sort of find out exactly what the results of that were but yeah I know that the idea of it is that it forms this this hydrogel in the stomach which allows you to uh, take on a much higher rate of carbohydrate than you can with sort of your normal fructose uh, glucose fructose mixes um, so that's the idea of it I, th I forget the exact figures but I think one serve that's about 80 grams of carbs compared yeah. to your standard high carb drink like your Gatorade which would be around 35 40 I think so it's about double the the actual carbohydrate intake and the, the claim and obviously what a lot of these elites are finding is that you can actually take on that much if you were to take on that much in your standard glucose fructose you'd probably get a lot of gr distress which would would probably derail your race pretty quickly yeah um, i looked at um i was watching uh elliot kipchoge so in the the closing stages of the the marathon there was elliot kipchoge who's kenyan and he was flanked by these two ethiopian runners and i'm terrible i don't actually remember their names at the moment because they're but they're phenomenal. They were doing, they were staying with this guy, the greatest of all time. I think it was one of the last aid stations they went through. Kipchoge grabbed his water bottle, yeah. and I'm pretty sure it would have had his um, fluids in, uh, his hydration, whatever, whether it was Morton, 
he had a, a few big swigs on it, threw the bottle to the ground, and then literally just put went into another gear, yeah. and then dropped them straight away. And maybe that for me that's like a. I knew it as soon as that he had that sip, and the way he threw the bottle down, I was like, "This is it. He's going to go right now." Maybe it was just that hit that he needed just to give him, or it's just a. But maybe he's just a freak, and um, he probably didn't even need it anyway. Yeah, maybe that could have been a lot of things going on. But I think the one, just from a probably a, a purely non-scientific, more of a tactical point of view, was when he did that. You noticed that there was a very tight group of three, and I think anyone that's been in those sort of race situations knows that it's a lot easier to run a pace when you're directly behind someone even if when you're on your own that's a really difficult pace just having that effect of that rhythm and having those sort of heels to hang on to is a lot easier but what Kipchoge did by taking that drink was obviously gave himself that you know maybe that that carbs that electrolyte that, that perhaps he needed in those those last few k's but also what he did was put that lateral distance between him and the chasers um yeah and it's a lot harder to keep pace with someone who's running laterally five meters away from you than it is running with someone there so i, I noticed it also i don't know if anyone tuned in early and, and watched the wheelchair race as well exactly the same thing happened the guy who won came up to a, a railing and three of the guys went one way and this guy went the other way and just put his burst in when he was the other side of the railing and you notice a lot of people doing that like giving themselves that lateral distance just so they've got that space where you know because all, all it takes for someone like Kipchoge is a, is a five ten second burst and he's away yeah. um, so if he's five meters over the other side of the road and you can't see him doing that it's a lot harder to stay with him than if he's doing that straight in front of you so I think maybe that might have contributed to his motivation to going to grab the drink you know you've seen yeah. someone like Mo Farah's done that before in a 10,000 track race he's gone to take a swig of water which the speed that Farah runs 10,000 and he's not going to need a drink in that time exactly like it's over in under 28 minutes yeah, yeah. but it's it's just this whole sort of mind yeah. game tactical element put that lateral distance between you and it's it's often easier to get that sort of jump on people yeah um no that's really interesting obviously like um no it's fascinating so we talked about morton but so tell me how i guess it's an opportunity for you to talk about um a bit about precision hydration how that works versus a product like morton um sure yeah, so, I mean, whereas um, your things like your Morton and, and other products like that, they're, they're predominantly a fuel, so they will have uh, an element of electrolyte in, they'll, they'll vary, um, but they're obviously predominantly that carbohydrate fuel. The, this, the precision hydration is more purely on the hydration basis. Um, so we have some of our products, some of the, the newer all-natural products, do have a small amount of carbohydrate, around 16 grams a serve. Um, but that's basically just in there to open up something called glucose sodium co-transport. So it's this idea that uh, sodium can get into the cells through the same door, essentially, that glucose does. Um, so if we can just have a small amount of glucose that we take our electrolyte with, uh, it can basically open up two doors. So the sodium can go through the sodium door right. or it can go through the glucose door is, is the very simple way of looking at it. Um, but other than that sort of small bit of glucose, it's purely based around the hydration. Um, so we always kind of have the ethos that you hydrate from your bottles uh, and you fuel from your pockets, basically. So it's just some people prefer to have everything in one bottle and, and yep. some people get on with that really well. But we always sort of have the ethos that you can, you can split it up and work out exactly what you need if you know that you've got this much electrolyte in your bottles. But not a huge amount of glucose so then that you know you need exactly 
this many gels rather than kind of struggling to work out oh we've got you know 25 grams of carbs there so that's like you know nearly a uh, three quarters worth of a gel so then it, you know it, it's sometimes a lot easier just to completely separate the two so that's sort of the ethos that we have wow, that's fascinating i think there's some really good information there for people to like regardless of which product they're using it's a good in, a good thing to think about i, I think people and myself included and anyone who wants to take their running seriously especially longer distances you need to take your hydration and nutrition much more seriously like i as soon as i started thinking about nutrition and hydration more my running improved out of sight you know like and like i'm no i'm no elite obviously but i you know that definitely made me i performed a lot better i my experience was a lot better as well my experience in the race rather than have to just go through pain yeah. <laughs> as much pain um so one of the things you mentioned during your um our email exchange when we were setting this interview up was um, you talked about sweat testing, and so um, so a lot of people might have heard about it, and but they don't know much about it. So I know you can probably fill us in a little bit. So you want to sort of maybe go in a little bit to the science of it and and why it's a good thing for runners to to learn about. Sure. Yeah. So obviously, uh, most people will be aware that your, your sweat is made up of um, different components of uh, electrolytes, etc. But um, what a lot of people may not be so aware of is actually that the, uh, the sweat composition between me and you or between uh, any, any runners can vary massively all the way from like a really low concentration of around 300 milligrams per litre of, uh, of sodium all the way up to, we've tested people that have been like off the charts of I think 1,700-1,800 milligram per litre of sodium. Um, yeah. And these are your people that you'll see in your training session you know, black kit, like with big white salt marks look like they've been in the sea or like crystallized salt on their on their face and all that sort of stuff. Um, and yeah, up until sort of recently, the, the guy who set the company up, Andy, was a, a very high sodium sweater um, and he was a, an elite triathlete and really struggled, uh, certainly when he was going abroad to race in hot conditions, really struggled with things such as cramp and just, you know, general... Uh, fatigue, dizziness, things like that, but muscle cramps being sort of the real debilitating one. Um, and he was a, a sports scientist, did the same degree that I did um, at Bath, uh, and had a little look into it and realized that actually, yeah, most of the products that were on the market that were branded as hydration products were, were actually sort of really a one-size-fits-all approach, um, which it is sort of a bell-shaped curve in terms of how the, the distribution is. So those products will suit sort of a large percentage of people but there are definitely uh, significant minorities what I, I would call significant minorities of outliers um, who, who wouldn't be suitable for those products so that's how the sort of um, the highest strength stuff came about so the sweat testing basically artificially stimulates um, a small section of, of your sweat glands um, using a little gel disc called pilocarpine um, and basically what that does is it mimics the uh, message from your brain to the to the sweat glands that you're working hard so it means that just from sitting here um, without having to get in a heat chamber and sweat loads just from sitting there with a little disc uh, connected to a, a small electrical charge um, we can basically trick a small section of your skin into sweating really maximally that's amazing and so I mean is it is that accurate and accurately comparable to um, like 
to running, like if to, you know? Yeah, so yeah, there's been quite a lot of um, sort of research comparing it to like your, your patch testing, sort of some of the, the older method of, of sweat testing, which would require like a lot of running and stuff. But what we find is that the thing that varies massively from winter to summer or location is your sweat rate. Yes. So that's the thing that you've got to really sort of use your brain and think, okay, well, I'm exercising today, it's 30 degrees, my sweat rate is going to be higher than it was last week or whatever. And then you've got like the, the dew point as well. Like, yep. and, and what's the humidity like? And, yeah. Yeah, so it's those things that you've, you've got to sort of use a bit of experience and a bit of knowledge to, to know that that's going to vary. But what we have um, found with the research is that actually the concentration of sodium that you lose stays really consistent even throughout your age throughout the conditions that the sodium concentration will stay really consistent um, so yeah the sweat testing can just kind of basically narrow your plan down and just mean that that one part of the plan you know exactly what it is um, and we'll always combine that so you've got your sweat sodium concentration your sweat rate and then uh, your duration so how long you're out there for and it's a combination of those three which contribute to, to your net losses of sodium. Um, so by, by having the sweat test, you, you just know that, that that one third of the equation, you know exactly what that is. And then you can kind of use your own knowledge of how long you're going to be out there, what your sweat rate is, depending on conditions and stuff, to then um, yeah, know what you kind of need to be replacing. That's amazing. Really interesting. I have, I'm going to play devil's advocate because <laughs> I've heard my... Uh, the. Um, the evidence about surrounding sodium loss and cramping, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I know that there has been some debate about, you know, people taking salt tablets to, to get rid of cramping. Is it a placebo effect doing stuff like that? Yeah, so that, that yeah, there's, like I said, there's a lot of debate around it. Um, and again, this is where I, I mentioned the name Tim Noakes again, who yeah. um, he sort of has... He, he has the opinion that the, the body has um, a very effective sodium uh, balancing mechanism so that the kind of the idea of electrolyte supplements are basically not needed and that you can just drink water to thirst and your body will sort the rest of the sodium out. And uh, that's, yeah, he's got his evidence and he's got his reasons behind that. But I think there's, there's a lot of other evidence to suggest that sodium is a, a finite resource um, and if you are a very high sodium sweater you've got a very high sweat rate eventually your stores are going to be depleted um, and that can lead to things like cramps again cramps are a really interesting one because there's hundreds of theories about cramps um, there's a few main ones but there's there's plenty of theories out there um, and there's not really one that's completely universally accepted as, as the reason behind them um, electrolyte depletion is probably one of the bigger ones and uh, we have a, a sort of a cramping survey that we do every year and we generally find that it's at least 90% of people who um, initially suffer with cramps and then will try some sort of electrolyte supplement um, will find that they're alleviated. Uh, you then go on you know, to say things about placebo effects. Um, I think with anything you take, you can never guarantee that there's there's not going to be a placebo. There's yeah. It's not necessarily a bad thing, a placebo effect. Yeah. You know, if, yeah. it, if it makes you feel better then why not? Yeah, I mean, the, the brain can do amazing things, but I think rather than being a placebo, I think what can happen is, is as you said previously, with the idea that just having that sodium in your mouth um, can, can help a lot more than, uh, than maybe people realise. Um, but yeah, I think 
th there's always going to be people with with every sports supplement out there, yeah. whether it's you know even the, the amount of evidence that's behind carbohydrate, it's it's just a, a complete wealth of evidence behind carbohydrate, and then there'll still be sort of qualified sports scientists in, out there that say, oh, you know, carbohydrate is you know is, is overrated. You don't need as much of it as these people are saying. So, I think really um, what I would always say is that it's always worth looking into the evidence yourself and also just trying these things out yourself and find what works for you. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to suggest, mention that because, I mean, just commenting on my own experiences, early on in my distance running career, I used to cramp a lot. And in, like, running marathon distance and beyond, I would find it gets about 27, 28 Ks, almost like clockwork. Mm. I would get massive um, cramps in my quads, and calves, like my my legs, it felt like my entire legs just turned to concrete, and and um, and that was because I mean I wasn't high, I mean I was hydrating a lot. I d certainly wasn't, um, I certainly wasn't taking in enough nutrition, and I think since I started taking better, making more of an effort to hydrate and um, eat the right nutrition, my cramping became less of an issue, and um, so I think doing something is better than nothing. So, you know, that's my theory. And, and like you say, experimenting is the best thing. But yeah, going with them. And I think that's one of the thing that's good about science is we just keep debating, you know, and yeah. keep but basing, trying to base things on evidence. Yeah, and I think that's the thing as well, to never, you know, I, I've certainly got my, um, my own things that work for me running-wise. I've got my own things that I've learned from, from my degree and stuff. But, you know, when I'll see maybe a slightly radical or strange opinion out there i think it's always important to never just discount these things always go into it read it kind of think about why they've got the reasons that they have and i think um yeah sports science is still a very it goes beyond just um sports science i think that yeah. that method because <laughs> yeah, exactly. every every kind of opinion or fact or yeah you know. yeah but um yeah sports science specifically is still a very young discipline um, so there, really, you'd say that, yeah. Yeah, there, there is going to be, there's still, we've still got a long way to go with a lot of these things. There's always going to be new things. I mean, the one that I find fascinating at the moment, moving away from nutrition, is the whole idea behind the the new Nike shoes. They had the four percent shoe. Now this year at the the marathon, they've had the five, next, yeah. yeah, the five percent or the next percent shoe. Um, yeah. At what point does it become cheating? Yeah. yeah, exactly. But with all of these things, I think yeah, there's a long way to go. So. Yeah, don't sort of discount the theories that you see. Always research it for yourself, and if if it's affordable, unlike the next percent shoe, if it's something that's affordable, then what are they worth? Oh, I think about four hundred and fifty dollars. I think. Wow. So, and for a shoe that probably you're going to get about maybe two hundred k's in before it's worn out, it's it's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that um, some of the shoes, like the four percent, they're not worth it if you're not already a sub three-hour marathon runner. It's not really going to make that big a difference um, because technique-wise, or I don't know, like I heard somewhere in, in maybe it was in Japan, they weren't willing to sell the shoes to anyone who was not a sub three marathon runner, maybe because they want good feedback. I don't know. Yeah, the one the one in Japan was the it wasn't the standard four percent. They did a Nike did a 3D printed version, which was worth something stupid like a thousand dollars or something. I can't remember. People would buy it. 
yeah people would buy it yeah. um but that was the one where yeah you had to go they would only sell them at this one shop in japan and you had to go in with evidence that you'd done a sub three hour marathon that's amazing plus the ridiculous price fee uh, yeah and and then you'd get a pair of them but only only then they would have sold out guaranteed <laughs> because oh, yeah. you just 3d print some more yeah yeah <laughs> but i mean i i i think you know, there was so, we've created so many mechanical advantages in running, and even just the fact that we're looking so deeply in um, into the science of nutrition and hydration and all those things, it's like it's and it, it's fantastic. I love the progression of the sport, but you know, I, it it seems like it sort of starts to blur the line for me. I love playing this game, this devil's advocate game. It almost blurs the line of cheating. You know what I mean, like mechanical advantage and I know like yes injecting drugs or peptides or something is because it's, it's I guess it's illegal because it gives a, a big advantage but it also gives um, and it's potentially dangerous obviously but it's sort of like why other than the danger factor why is it so much more um, you know do yeah. you know what I mean like why is the the, the illegality of it versus running in the four percent are the four percent going to be like the super suits they had in swimming a few years back yeah and i think that's yeah that's one thing i think they've almost been around so long now that they won't get banned um but if you look at the actual iwf rules which i'm sad enough to have had a look at they they specifically say that the sh shoes you can run barefoot or you can run in shoes you can run in socks you can run in whatever you like but Specifically, shoes should only be there to protect an athlete's foot from the ground that they're running on or to, um, I think there's something about injury in there as well, but they, they do specifically say in the rules that any additional, that the shoes shouldn't be designed to give any additional um, speed, I guess, to the athlete, which the 4% are, that's simply the point of them. But then yeah. if you look at any shoe over the last three or four years you look at the the new foam that the, the new balance ones are using you look at the adidas boost foam they're all designed to give an increase in efficiency they're all designed to give an increase in speed ultimately so where you actually draw that line um it yeah like you say it can become a bit a bit blurred and i think for me coming from triathlon that was one of the big things that sort of I didn't really like about triathlon and cycling to an extent is that as a student it's difficult to afford the really good bikes and the really good yeah. uh, wheels or whatever it is but you know I turn up to a local time trial where it's you know 20 pounds of prize money and a 10 pound entry fee and you've got people that turn up with a minivan and a that's got a full carbon bike in a turbo trainer and I'm there on my you know 350 <laughs> quid bike which that's what I quite liked about running was that you can spend you know a reasonable amount on a pair of shoes maybe 150 dollars say but then you're on a level playing field with the elites at the London Marathon there's there's no other sort of real yeah. equipment thing that's holding you back whereas now with the the inclusion of the the four percent sell at $350, the next percent sell at about $450, $500. And it is becoming a state, even at some local races that I've done, it's becoming uh, a kind of thing that if you don't have those shoes, you're at a disadvantage. I mean, I won't name his name because he is a very good runner and it's not just because of his shoes, but the guy who won Clare Valley Half Marathon was wearing 4% shoes and, oh. and no one else was. So I'm not saying that he would have beaten me wearing flip-flops, but... If we do the maths... 
Did he beat you by four percent of your race time? No, he, he would have. Yeah, he would have beaten me on his hands probably. But still. But yeah, I, I mean, see what you mean. But yeah. it is becoming a point that even your local races where there's no prize money or anything. Yeah. If you haven't got the shoes, then potentially you're at a disadvantage. So that's that's my only worry is that running becomes towards the element of cycling where if you don't have thousands of dollars to spend on your bike you're at a disadvantage that's that's my only worry about it really yeah and like years ago the guy there was a, oh, i can't remember his name he um i think his last name was gray he broke the 200 meter world record i'm talking like we're going back 30 or 40 years mm. but he was wearing brush spikes are you familiar with so you know like on you have spikes for running yeah, on yeah, track yeah. but brush spikes are much smaller spikes and there's like number of rows of them there's lots right, of them yeah. so they almost and they they deemed that his world record was invalid because those shoes were an unfair advantage whereas you know like um it took it and it took years before that was seen as uh, before he the record the rec, the time that he achieved was actually beaten and yeah. so but he was a really good athlete i'll have to, so i'm sure someone will put it on facebook when i post this episode but i mean it was i just thought it was yeah like nowadays is that going to be a thing you know like and even like just your, your spring track your, your running tracks yeah. what an advantage they offer yeah. versus running on a grass track or a or a cinder track like they used to do back in the day yeah and there's yeah. there's a really interesting uh ted talk out there it's called are we getting better faster stronger or oh, something like I've that i've seen it yeah. yeah and that sort of shot and i think he has a graph uh, of the swimming world records and there's obviously a general downwards trend but then there's these big drops and one of them is when they brought in uh, the gutters on the pool so that the water could go over the edge of the pool rather than sort of rebounding creating turbulence and there's a few little things like that and i think marathon running has just had a, a another big drop and that's you can say it's, there's you know potentially some confounding variables but there's a lot of evidence now that you can look at graphs and look at the top 10 marathon results for the last sort of two or three years and uh yeah they've just they've dropped significantly and and the other thing that you notice is when you you look at the the front of a marathon field they've all got the bright orange four percents or now the, the yeah. bright green next percents but i feel like they should um they all the elite runners should have to run in the same i mean most of them do run in the same shoes yeah but they should make it like when you sign up here's your race shoes yeah. you get sized up and you have to run in those shoes yeah. you know to level the playing field um but you know they in a sense they all do if they're running in the if they're, if they're running sort of sub 215 there's more pretty good chance they're going to be running in the same shoes yeah. but um no that's fascinating um so yeah good uh, I, I could uh talk about the advantages and disadvantages of that we've created over the last hundred years i could talk about that all day it's fascinating and i'm really interested to see where it's all going to go in, even in the next 10 years you know and like thinking back thinking about trail running like trail running has evolved a lot in the last 10 years you know with hydration packs and and things like that and just they offer an advantage that you can carry your nutrition and your you can, you can take charge of things a lot more like i've run faster much faster time since i got a decent pack um the other um so that, that the reason why i bring that up is because you i want you to tell me a little bit about your your abila uh, 2018 that you you did that was your first ultra a yeah. trail ultra not an easy race it's a tough race no i think i probably massively underestimated it but that's I everyone mean, does what everyone does yeah first yeah. time you do an ultra um 
Yeah, I, it was one of those where I think last year was just a year of firsts for me. I kind of got a few PBs and then thought, oh, let's do a marathon, and then ended up doing two marathons. And then a couple of weeks out from Yarrabilla, I thought, oh, let's, you know, let's just do it. it you know, it's just a long run, isn't it? But um, yeah, I absolutely loved the first 35K. I was just, you know, just taking yeah. it all in and it was great. And I was just sort of plodding along at my own pace. Um, but I think when you haven't done a distance like that and a distance like that with those sort of hills that are in there, because some of them are bloody steep hills. Yeah, um, towards the end, again, the hills get real long. <laughs> yeah, and I think if, if, if you haven't got that experience, what you think to be slow is not slow. And uh, I think it... I, I was watching an interview with a very famous Australian trail runner, Lucy Bartholomew, and um, when she did Western States 100, and she sort of said a similar thing, because for her, it was her one of her first sort of big hundred milers and it's sort of a, a similar way that she sort of said oh yeah you know first couple of hills you think you think that you're taking it easy but actually it will catch up with you in the end so I think yeah, yeah I learn a lot about you know when I, when I went to the marathon I think I learned a lot about how to pace a marathon compared to a, a half marathon 10k and then I think going to an ultra is just another step of of learning how to pace and how you've you've really got to be not just comfortable but almost like too comfortable yeah feeling like you're yeah. not trying to in order to get through at a consistent pace i think absolutely i mean yeah lucy she's a friend of the podcast i interviewed um, her i think way back in like episode three mm. and it was just after she'd done the uh, western states 100 and um yeah fantastic she still did a fantastic race mm, yeah. but i mean she led for i don't know how long first 100 k's maybe yeah so, like a that, fair yeah. bit and i think I really would like to see her do well again this year. I'd, I'd like to get, see her get on the podium. I, you know, it's good to see her. And she's still so young, you know. But, um, yeah, it's so hard to... I, and I've gone out too fast. I think coming from a road running background, and you might, you'll probably agree with me here, it can be a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing in that you have really good running economy. You can run fast when you need to run fast but you the, the curse is that you go too fast too too often and it, like I think like all the people that I coach I um I, I still get them to do quite a lot of flat road running even when they're running on a hilly mountain trail because mm. I want them to be efficient um but um yeah so like what would you do differently going into something like Eurobilla again how would you train differently for it um, or actually tell me about how you trained for it initially well, my training initially was road was, running was pretty minimal um, I, I basically thought oh, I've done two marathons so another marathon in a bit won't be too difficult which was a very stupid thing to think um, <laughs> 56 I, kilometers yeah. but it feels more like a hundred yeah it's yeah it's a tough 56 um, but I think yeah just um, probably more specific running on those sort of trails um, I'm kind of fortunate in that I, I tend to climb quite well um, but one thing that I've I've brought into my training now um, and definitely brought into it after I did the two peaks a few weeks ago which is a predominantly downhill course and sort of is it 23 k's yeah 23 k um but probably about 15 of those k's are all downhill which yeah. sounds like an absolute joy but smash the quads yeah after about <laughs> six or seven k's you're, you're you're praying for an uphill to be honest yeah um 
So yeah, bringing in some more like eccentric work into my training tends, I think, has tended to help a little bit. So absolutely. Yeah. So so some stuff in the gym. So for example, like a really easy one that people can do is a like a, a single leg eccentric leg press. So pick a weight that's nice and easy to press up with two legs and then just bring it down slowly with one push it up with two bring it down slowly with one that's like those sort of things in the gym uh i think have sort of helped me with my some of my downhill running and that will also help with your flat running as well because at the end of the day you are working eccentrically on every step so that that sort of work will help um and also a lot of people go and do hill sessions where they'll they'll do the effort uphill and then they might walk down or just sort of slowly jog down but there's there's a lot of merit in actually doing it the other way around so making your, your easy section walking up the hill and then really working hard on the way down um uh, mate i could not agree with you more <laughs> it's so true as i said to you earlier before we started recording no one gets injured on the on the uphill yeah. they just get tired yeah <laughs> yeah and well, it'll make you faster as well but yeah, that, yeah that's the other thing that yeah all, all the sort of little ankle rolls or little knee issues tend to happen on the downhills and it's because they take a lot more out of your legs than people realize and maybe their their eccentric sort of uh training isn't doesn't prepare them enough to actually deal with that and that's where you get sort of knees giving way and ankles giving way and stuff so yeah i've, I've definitely bought a, a sort of at least trying to get a session a week session every two weeks when i can just um of, of sort of specific eccentric downhill training and definitely helps on the trails but i think helps on the roads as well interesting Here's a question that I've been asked quite a lot, and I want to hear your perspective. What do you think gives you a bigger advantage, becoming better at running uphill or better at running downhill? And I'm talking from a time perspective, not so much a fitness perspective. Sure. Uh, it's and it could be marathon, like roads yeah. or trails. Well, that's, it's one thing that I know. When I first got into the trail running, one of my first races was Sturt Gorge 2000. And 17 it must have been and uh, that's a for anyone that hasn't done it it's a very uh technical course like it's quite hilly lots of sort of single track sort of very technical downhills technical uphills and i because of just my sort of relatively decent background of fitness from from rowing and other running i used to row for adelaide uni um so i kind of had the, the fitness to get the uphills all right but where i was losing people was on the downhills um, and then went to Sturt Gorge 2018 after doing a lot of down, more downhill training and was sticking with the pack. So I think the way that I look at it is that it's the down, you have to be good enough on the downhills to stay with the pack. So whatever that standard is for you, whether it's the front runners, whether it's just that middle pack. Yep. Um, but it's really, I think, the uphills that kind of separate your first from your second or your, your, your top five from your top 20 say um but i think it's still important that you have that so my answer my short answer would be the uphills um but i think it's still important that you've got that downhill standards just to keep with that pack around you i think yeah i tend to agree so like a few years ago we had the australian mountain running championships here in yeah. adelaide yeah. on my on my home trail of black hill and um it's a really tough course, 13 kilometres, I think it was about 900 metres elevation over 13 k's. Yeah. And I'm traditionally not a very good downhill runner because, I mean, I've got pretty short legs. I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm good on the uphill. So I, I was quite strong on the uphills. And, uh, but I knew that with the, the mountain running championships, I wanted to 
because you have to do the descent twice mm, yeah, and the, as yeah. well as the as ascent twice but on the descent i'd ended up i trained specifically for it doing downhill long steady downhill reps yeah. as and also reps where i was just on the edge of control yeah. if that makes sense where i was just if i went any faster i would fall over but i had to be really careful i tried to do them because my hips would get sore my um my back, my lower back would get sore running downhill, and that's something that a lot of people really, especially as you get older, um, you encounter. And um, but yeah, and in the end, my downhill running was actually my strongest point. I overtook two guys on the downhills, managed to stay on my feet, and I yeah, still I finished. I think I finished thirteenth in that race, which I was really pleased with. I didn't expect to finish even in the top twenty. I was hoping to. So yeah, it's um. But yeah, downhill, underrated. So my advice as a coach, and I think uh, Jim will agree with me a little to an extent, get work on, don't, don't neglect the downhills. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. definitely. And, um, you know, but I, I also say pre- you've got to prepare yourself for the downhills in terms of training. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, do you think, so you're gonna, would you go back and do Eurobilla again anytime soon? Oh, I definitely. Or, or an ultra? I, I definitely would. I definitely not done with ultras I, I said to uh, my partner the other day that I want to do my first 100k before I'm 30 um, so that's sort of a, a vague goal uh, plenty of time yeah plenty of time you're, um, you're only a whippersnapper <laughs> young lad yeah. Um, but yeah for now like I'm happy focusing on the road stuff and sort of like did a bit of the track stuff over the summer like trying to get some fast times on the board when I can, but yeah, definitely not done with the ultras. Uh, whether I do Yarrabilla this year, I I don't know because it's it's pretty taxing, eh? Yeah, and it's an annoying time of year. It's around that time of year where you've got like City Bay and a few other races that if you want to hit them well, then doing Yarrabilla is, is not ideal. Um, yeah, it's detrimental. And also, hmm. I've never done City Bay because it's always fallen about a week before Yarrabilla, yeah, yeah. and I find like a hard 12k is going to take a lot out of me like you know you're probably the same like if i'm doing 12k i'm going to go for it yeah. you know but and i i reckon i'm just as sore after a really fast you know 10 to 15k race yeah. as i am after something like eurobilla in saying that the first time i did eurobilla you probably re- i felt like i had been run over by a bus <laughs> you know? yeah i <laughs> were you sore yeah, very so. Why they put it on? I wish it was on a Saturday so you'd have that one day of recovery before having to, having to go and work or whatever. But yeah, I remember trying to work on that Monday and. Uh, it's just good if you don't need to negotiate any stairs. Yeah, it was. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, funny story was that that was that some of the work I've been doing this year because um, of my, my visa, I'm doing some agricultural work. So I was working as a beekeeper believe it or not and uh, that sounds great <laughs> it's oh it's definitely something for the cv um, <laughs> but yeah the day after yarrabilla was the first day that we went on a we go out to a wakery and sort of four day trips um to do some work out there because of the orange blossom season um and yeah it was the first day out in wakery the day after yarrabilla and um so lifting up like 25 kilo boxes worth of honey and getting stung by bees and stuff I was yeah, oh. it's just like an abs- a bit of a nightmare but yeah got through it so yeah no it's hard um no so um that's amazing yeah so in the next few months so you're aiming to do so the next race you're doing is going to be uh the marathon is that right or you got any you can do Stur- Sturt Gorge in a few weeks or yeah I'll do I'll do Sturt Gorge um yeah. I've been 
advised not to sort of go too hard at Stoke Gorge because it's yeah it's prime for you know the ankle roll or just yeah. it takes a lot out of you um, there's also the state 10k road champs that I'd like to give a go there first week of June where are they held so they're at Victoria Park this year which is a perfect course it's four two and a half k laps um, on the sort of uh, anyone that's done the Pachypacanthi Park Run, it sort of takes in the first straight of that course um, and then goes actually around the, the actual sort of road surface racetrack there. So that'll be a really nice quick 10k to hopefully hopefully knock a few seconds off the PB. Um, yeah, it'd be a good um, good test for the marathon. Is that in June, did you say? Yeah, so it's it's far, It's about four, maybe five weeks before the marathon. So it's enough time, you know, 10k you can recover relatively quickly. Um, so it'll probably just be uh, my, my problem is that, that I love to race and I love to do events um, but then it's finding that balance between doing enough events that you enjoy it and doing too many events that you never recovered enough so yep. I think it's less is more yeah so it's now nine and a half weeks till Gold Coast so Stoke Gorge 10k Gold Coast in, in nine weeks yeah you're getting, should, should be fine <laughs> yeah it's, and you're young and so you're you're recovered well but I, I, I mean, my personal opinion is that a lot of people do too much, yeah. you know, and um, we don't all have the luxury of um, being elite athletes that can, that can train and then have a two-hour nap during the day and then go and train some more. Yeah. But, and so we don't have that ability to recuperate. Um, you know, life stress takes a lot out of it, uh, you know, working, um, family, you know, if you've got children or whatever. But, um, yeah, so... But that's just my, my thing. And as I, I've sort of learnt that over years, you know, of, of running. And, I mean, there's a lot of athletes. As, and like you mentioned about what you want to do your first 100K by the time you're 30, you know. And I, you mentioned to me you're 23, right? Mm, yeah. 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 So, I mean, that's incredibly, like, wise <laughs> choice by you. Um, and so a lot of people... Um, because a lot of people would say, oh, they want to do it straight away. They want to jump straight into it. So you, that's actually, you'll probably end up doing it before then. You're probably more ready for it than you realize. But also realizing that it takes a lot of maturity to realize it takes a long time to prepare for something like that. And so, um, yeah, um, no, it's, it's, uh, it's really good. I, I think, um, yeah, and so after the marathon, you've got no real clear goals yet. No, not yet. I've, it, it's it's a little bit of sort of tunnel vision on, onto Gold Coast at the moment. Um, I'm sure you know the the amount of events that there are around SA um, around the sort of winter and spring season. I'll find something to focus on, um, and obviously there's always the Winter Trail series, which is yeah. always great fun. So there's... I mean, you can always mix it up with shorter course, medium yeah. or longer course, and I think you can categorise that A race, B race, yeah. even a C race. You know. Yeah. I think probably City Bay will end up being like the next big focus, um, whether it'll be the 12K or the City Bay half marathon that they brought in last year, because I think looking at that course, it's probably the fastest half marathon course in the state, I would say, like just looking at it, because obviously it's a, it's a net downhill, but it's within, it's close enough that it's within the sort of AIMS certified parameters, so you can still sort of take it as a, a proper PB, it's not like a, a downhill point to point. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's closed roads, like dead sort of uh, flat surface. Um, Claire was sort of a, 
like a sort of dusty track. It wasn't like a trail, but it was it wasn't a sort of bitumen surface. Um, Which I think it has a big impact on your um, performance. I mean, you you notice you got you kick up a little bit of dust. You're losing like a couple of millimeters on every step, essentially. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. yeah, over the course of a race, that that'll add up. So yeah, yeah, like after doing it a decent time at Clare, like. Prob- uh, sort of back of my mind quite keen to, to go for the City Bay half and try and sort of get that get down towards that 115 mark um, yeah. but yeah we'll, we'll see it at the moment yeah I'm just want to kind of spend this year get that that sub 3 marathon in the bank and then oh mate 115 half is incredibly fast and I think <laughs> um, I think it, if you can get your endurance just keep up some of those long runs I think that that's almost, I don't want to say, there's nothing's a given in the marathon. Anything can happen. However, yeah, you're definitely well-placed to run a quick marathon time. Um, before I let you go, I just wanted to ask you about, um, there's, a, there's a documentary by a British guy a few years back. It's called Running to the Limits. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's about this guy, amateur, um, amateur athlete. He, done the, he did the London Marathon in his early 20s in about four and a half, hours like he was not fast really um he was a beer drinker you know overweight but then he decided to do this documentary where he wanted to see if an amateur person could achieve the olympic qualifying time in the marathon if they put as much time and effort into training as an elite fascinating documentary (laughs) the guy obviously had some natural running ability so over two years, that's all he did is train and document. And he did, um, he took his marathon time so close to qualifying to the Olympics. Wow. He, he got his half time down to like 113 or 111. Yeah. And then he got his, um, I think he got his marathon time down to about 230. Jeez. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So <laughs> it just goes to show like that was the, and, and that was adopting the best sports science, best coaches, like he was doing everything that like an elite athlete would do. Yeah. And um, yeah, really interesting. And so, I don't know, hopefully that gives you some perspective on what you can possibly do <laughs> in the, um, I mean, given, I know you've got work and stuff, but you're, you're in that sort of realm of speed as, as him. So I think you can do on, under three minutes, uh, three hours. Um, yeah, so if, um, if you're listening, I'd, when I put this episode up on the Facebook page, just comment and give. How about we give Jim some encouragement and say, "Go, Jim! Sub three hours. I'd love to see it. Easy, mate. Easy. Yeah. yeah I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> you um, no, it's really good. Just got to be consistent, consistent training, yeah. and you'll um, I think you'll get there. But um, yeah. So I think um, that might be a good place to uh, to tie this one up. And so it's been really good learning a bit about the uh, hydration and and, uh, and all that and going going a little bit deep with the science, which is really, I always find interesting. And some people, a lot of my listeners do find it, it, it really helpful. And um, I try to be, keep things a little bit educational here as well as just talking about uh, marathons. Uh, one more question. Do you think we will see a sub two hour marathon in the next few years? Um, I think we'll definitely see a sub 201. Uh, I think we official. I think we could potentially see a sub 201 this year. Yep. Um, a sub two. 
Yeah, why not? Let's say let's say ten years. Within ten years, I think it will be there. Um, uh, you're it's, cautious. It's, yeah, I, I don't want to. You know, I don't want people to 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 bring bring this up in a few years' time and pay me out on it. But sure. um, it's 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 documented now. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you know it's also who's who's coming in behind the likes of the Kipchoge's. You know, I think the setup that they've got there, from what I've seen, seems like it's just sort of a, a talent factory. So if they can keep bringing those sort of talent through then um, yeah who knows what can happen yeah I, I'd love to see what Kipchoge could do as a trail runner <laughs> yeah. yeah I've heard that before actually it'd be really interesting to put him on a, a trail marathon and see what he does no like they've got no ability to turn corners though because the yeah. <laughs> they're too fast <laughs> yeah I mean just like having seen sort of a few documentaries and interviews with him like he seems like the type of guy that he would just lap up the challenge so yeah yeah maybe someone can can send the challenge out to him. Yeah. All right, uh, Jim K. Thank you very much for your um, for your time and your knowledge, and good luck with your future endeavours, mate. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Cheers. <laughs>